From KVMR and in partnership with Freed, this is Disability Rap. Instead of looking someone in the eyes and seeing if I was attracted to him or if we had chemistry, I was caught up in this internal anxiety attack or drama where I wasn't even really able to enjoy myself. Today, a conversation with Greg Marshall on discovering he had cerebral palsy 30 years after he was born. I think being disabled honestly made me a better lover. It made me a better listener. It made me more giving and it made me work around what I couldn't do. And it made me really good at what I could do. That's all coming up on Disability Rock. Stay tuned. Welcome to Disability Rap. I'm Carl Sigmund. And before we introduce our guest today, I want to welcome Lindsay Wells. As disability raps, new co-host. New co-host. Listeners of our show may remember that we had Lindsay. On a few months ago, talking about, talking about disability, pride. disability pride. Well, well, Lindsay is now our disability community advocate. Here at Freed. Welcome. Welcome. She is already rocking the And she is already rocking the job. And making waves in our local community. And making waves in our local community. So, so Lindsay. Welcome to the host chair. Here on Disability Rap. Thank you, Carl. It's great to be a part of the show and part of the team here at Freed. And we look forward to hearing more to hearing more from you and about the great work you're doing in the coming months. But for now, Lindsay, you 
introduce today's guest. Today's guest. Yes. Well, today we're joined by someone who has cerebral palsy since he was born, but no one ever told him that he had CP or even that he had a disability. It was not until Greg Marshall was in his early 30s and applying for private health insurance for the first time that he learned through a review of childhood medical records that he actually had cerebral palsy. Up until that point, he just thought he had tight tendons, which was the line that his parents used to, to explain why his feet and legs didn't work like other kids his age. Greg Marshall takes us on a journey of discovery in his new book, Leg, the story of a limb and the boy who grew from it. It's a memoir, not only about learning he had CP, but about a mom who fights cancer, a dad who gets diagnosed with ALS, and a sister on the autism spectrum. And it's a coming out story, coming out as a gay, man at the age of 19 and then coming out as disabled in his early 30s. The book is poignant and incredibly funny and tells the unique story of a kid who grew up in a small town in Utah where the only person who didn't know he had a disability was himself. Well, Greg Marshall. Welcome to Welcome to Disability Rap. It's an honor to have you with us. To have you with us. You know. You know. In the disability community. We talk about those We talk about those of us. Who are born with a disability. And then those who acquire a disability. Later in life. Either as a result of an accident, or illness, or just the general aging process. And I think, a lot of us, form our identities. Around one of those scenarios. And of course, they can overlap. And they often do And they often do overlap. But you don't fit anywhere in there. 
Anywhere in that Venn diagram. So I'm wondering if you could begin if you can begin talking about your own identity. By talking about your own identity now. And where you would place yourself. I very much now identify as a disabled person, similarly to identifying as a gay man. I would say that it's just a part of myself now that I, um, and I've really been on a journey. Um, Lindsay mentioned the kind of coming out nature of the book, and I think that's been so true for me. I think that coming out as a gay man um, at the age of 19 really taught me to come out as disabled um, because I'd already had to grapple with um, notions of my body and my physicality and my desires and kind of where I fit on the spectrum in terms of my sexuality. And so in so many ways, I'd always been grappling with cerebral palsy and with having, you know, living in a body that was demonstrably different. Um, and I loved, Lindsay, in your introduction, how you said that, you know, in my suburb of Salt Lake City, I was like the only one who didn't know that I was disabled because it's not like I was ever truly passing or ever truly hiding anything um, except to myself. And I think the harm that I did by being secretive or ashamed was truly also self-harm. And I think that um, I knew when I learned about my diagnosis that I didn't want to inflict that harm on myself anymore because I didn't want um, shame or secrecy to have power over me. So I think that writing my book, I was able to incorporate disability very quickly into the narrative of who I was. It was more like I finally had a term that matched the magnitude of my struggle and of what I'd been through. You know, growing up, I had... Um, Achilles tendon releases um, and a hamstring hamstring releases on both sides and had been through physical therapy. So in so many ways, I'd lived the life of a disabled person, but not been empowered by that life in the same way that I could have been. And so I guess in so many ways, my journey has really been one about claiming my journey, claiming kind of all that I'd been through. And so that, you know, the person I am now actually seems to match up better with the person I was before than when I was, you know, in the closet about disability, because it's all been the same body all along. So I think for me, it's added a level of coherence to my experience as a human being and introduced me to really a whole new world um, and a whole new way of being that I think I was just dying to be a part of and ready to be a part of kind of from the beginning. So I think that's why I that's why I was excited to write the book, I think, to get to have conversations like this, you know, and to see that I wasn't one of one. I was one of many and that, you know, all together we're so strong and we're so different and we bring such different things to the table. Um, but it's hard to come to that table when you're in the closet or when you're in denial or when you're ashamed. And so just to 
answer your question more simply, I would just say that I proudly identify as both gay and disabled at this point. So your parents strike me as such open people. Your mom documented in her journey with cancer in the pages of the newspaper that your dad owned um, about her journey. And yet they weren't open with you about your disability. Um, can you tell me if it was a relief of some sort at the age of 30 to get that diagnosis? And how did you go about that? You know, it was in so many ways an enormous relief to get the diagnosis. Growing up in the family that I did, um, I was surrounded by disability. My mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was in the second grade and is still alive today, having battled non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for all of those years and breast cancer um, and a variety of other health issues. And of course, my dad was diagnosed with ALS during my senior year of college um, and has you know passed away in 2008. And I was one of his caregivers. And I think their journeys gave me a script to follow or they really like when my, with my mom in particular I really saw how she was celebrated and um, valorized in her community as a disabled person and I'm not sure that back in my childhood she would have necessarily used the term disabled to describe herself but her um, her battle with cancer was very public. It was literally like, like you said, it was in the pages of the newspaper. And I saw the power that she had in claiming her story and making it her own instead of, you know, being the punchline. She was writing the punchline. You know, she was very much the hero of her own story. And it would be the kind of thing where she would have chemo or blood transfusion or a bone marrow biopsy you know, one day and then the next day be on her computer clacking away at her keyboard, writing about that story for a significant audience. And I think I looked at that both from a writing perspective and from a survival perspective and very much wanted that for myself. And I think that, you know, the same thing with my dad's ALS, he was very much the hero of his story. He was a marathon runner and a very active guy, a skier, a swimmer, you know, he, um, he was literally running marathons when he was diagnosed with ALS. And I think that one thing that angered me when I found out about my diagnosis was that cerebral palsy hadn't been allowed to be part of my journey. I wasn't allowed to be the hero of my own story in that same way. I couldn't incorporate it into my identity or talk about it or kind of have bodily communion with people about it. And I saw that as such a, I felt in a way like I'd been robbed of that experience. And I love my parents very much. And they had their reasons for doing what they did that, you know, they, uh, or at least my mom wouldn't be, be the one to ask about what her motivations were. But I knew that I wanted to be, if not the hero of my own story, I wanted to fully show up in my own life. I wanted to feel like the world was mine to wander and that this life was mine to live. And I think that 
you know, really claiming CP and just getting to see myself in full and cerebral palsy as a part of myself instead of something that I needed to be ashamed of or run away from was incredibly empowering. And so even though my parents in some ways didn't give me the language to grapple fully with being a disabled person, they provided these undeniable models um, for being um, for being disabled. And I think that that's kind of one of the tensions of the book that makes it really interesting. What, um, what ailments are valorized and celebrated and what are seen as taboo and um, stigmatized and kind of put in the closet. Um, and so I think that's something that I'm still grappling with just on a human level outside the book, but something that I hope readers can kind of look at with all of the different, you know, examples of disability in my family and, and ask themselves, you know, who is being served by secrecy and shame? Who is being served by the closet and who's being served by being out and open and who, who gets to be celebrated and who doesn't get to be celebrated. And I guess my personal mission with the book was just to kind of get to a place where I was celebrating myself, or if not celebrating myself, I mean, the book isn't just me having victories and looking good. In so many ways, I look absolutely terrible in the book. But I think that that's part of what I wanted to portray, a full person who's flawed and vain and silly and says the wrong thing and does the wrong thing, but is kind of on, you know, for lack of a better word, a journey to, uh, you know, a place of acceptance. Before you discovered you had CP, you had CP, you just you just thought you had you had tight tendons, and so. When you would go on dates, go on dates. You would You would not even bring up your your limp. You made and you made a comment. That the only person in that situation that you were that you were harming was was yourself. Can you explain? Yeah, I think what I mean by that is that when you spend all of your energy denying something that's apparent to the wider world, it kind of makes it your problem uh, or it makes it your, instead of just being open about it, I found myself always trying to, you know, never walk in front of people, for example, or not let people see me get in and out of a car or 
you know, not going to the bathroom on a date when I had to go to the bathroom because like, I didn't want to see them. I didn't want them to see me get up from a chair and walk to the bathroom. So just all of these, those are small examples of the control that that secrecy had over me that instead of, you know, looking someone in the eyes and seeing if I was attracted to him or if we had chemistry, I was caught up in this internal, you know, anxiety attack or drama um, where I wasn't even really able to enjoy myself and especially, um, you know, especially sexually not being able to kind of go into the bedroom with an apparent understanding of my body that would make me conversant with a partner. I just always had to wing it. And I think what that led to in terms of harming myself was not just the missed opportunity or the missed connection of a romance here or there or a fling here or there. It made me susceptible to other people not being truthful with me. Um, In the book, I talk a little bit about um, two different boyfriends who lied to me fairly grievously. Um, one, the one that comes instantly to mind is my boyfriend, Corey, who died of AIDS complications without telling me that he had AIDS. And he told me that he got tested and he hadn't. And so that's a really, you know, that was a really extreme example, obviously. But I think that because I felt like I was holding back and not being honest with him about my body and kind of why I had these scars on, you know, the backs of my legs and, you know, why I wasn't that great of a driver or any number of my CP symptoms. I think because I wasn't honest about those things, it made me feel like he didn't have to be fully honest with me, if that makes sense, and that he could kind of get away with duplicity or with half-truths or with fibs because, well, hey, I was a walking fib. You know, I wasn't being truthful with him. And so I guess, I guess, you know, to be a little bit more, you know, sharp with my answer, instead of any kind of a positive self-talk that would come with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, like, hey, you know, my brain works a little bit different, or, uh, you know, I may not be as strong of a walker as some, but I can, you know, do these other things remarkably well, instead of any kind of a positive self-talk, it became saying things like, you're stupid, you're incapable, you know, why would anybody want to date you? You know, maybe you should just take what you can get. And so I think those were the kinds of harms, that negative self-talk that was often going on in my head that just made me, made it made the world smaller and yet also more dangerous because I didn't feel like I could really trust myself. And I would say, you know, kind of one of the ways my brain works is, um, you know, spatial reasoning can be a little bit hard for me. So I'll lose my keys, but like really, really lose my keys. You know, even if they're turn out to be right in front of my face, I'm just inconsolably, you know, those keys are gone for good. Or if I, you know, I, I can lose my car in a parking structure really easily. And I think that before I 
had the CP diagnosis, I was so much less kind to myself. You know, I would instantly criticize myself um, and it would become all of this negative self-talk about how incapable I, I was, how I shouldn't even be driving, how I was so silly to try to, you know, apply for this or that job. I could never compete with, you know, um, a copywriter or an editor who wasn't in some ways neurodiverse. And now I guess I just feel like I have more grace with myself and I feel a little bit more like, okay, this is how your brain and body works and let's just work with it. I feel like more in partnership with my body than I did before and not in opposition to it. So I think I feel more ready to bring my whole self to my life and to, you know, tackle problems in the bedroom, which of course everyone will have, you know, whether you have CP and erectile dysfunction or not, you know, we're human beings. We all grapple with all of these things. And so now I almost, I guess it's kind of counterintuitive, but now I just see myself as so much more human and everybody's human and everybody makes mistakes and everybody, you know, has, you know, flaws or things that they change about themselves or things they wouldn't change about themselves. And so I guess I just feel like I've come to more of a place of peace. And so the danger would come from not being at peace, you know, when you're kind of in conflict with the very essence of yourself, you're going to set yourself up to fail more, you know, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And you do such a great job. And you do such a great job in the book. In the book. Showing how this external ableism you experienced as a child. Release away at you year by year by year. And I want to ask And I want to ask you more about more that about that in a minute. In a minute. But before I But before do, I do I would I would like to ask to ask you to read to read from the, from the book. book. And when you are and this is when you are applying to no Northwestern University. Something else happened to turn me off Northwestern that I didn't mention to John. Back in the fall of senior year, I'd done an alumni interview with a guy in an electric wheelchair. His wife had taken my coat when they answered the door and I'd walked stiffly to the couch in their cozy living room, unsure whether I should mention my tight tendons, hoping this guy, an engineer in town, didn't think I was making fun of him with my shambling gait. I hadn't mentioned anything about my leg in my application. Our conversation covered the usual ground, stories I'd written for Horizon, and what I'd learned so far from being student body president. As we talked, one of the engineer's house slippers fell off, I kept wanting to bend down and help him put it back on, but I just sat there on the couch 
hands on my thighs, biting my bottom lip, and thinking about how I was blowing it. How many times had a slipper fallen off my partially paralyzed foot? My brother said watching me try to put on a pair of shoes made him feel like he was having a stroke. That slipper brought back the sense of revulsion I'd felt for Carlotta. When I saw other disabled people, openly disabled people, I wanted to limp away as fast as I could. Maybe this was part of my attraction to John, my polar opposite, a Greek god who could spell things right on his first try, ace the ACT, and make the tennis team. And there he was in the parking lot of the Cottonwood Club, feeling up his chest muscles and begging me to follow him eastward. I had Dad call USC and back out that night. My destiny was in Chicago with John. Whoa. There is so much there. So much there. We could unpack. But I actually want you to take us. On a little journey. From your early foray into acting. To this interview. And how ableism affected all of that. Well, I think that early on performing, you know, I was very much into theater and loved The Wizard of Oz and was part of this great theater group that was full of disabled people called Up With Kids. And, you know, in a way it was such a celebratory space because I grew up in a suburb of Salt Lake City and it was very much skiing and hiking, you know, like that's all that you did all day, every weekend. Um, And so theater was such an outlet for me where I was the star and where I got to shine um, and where my disability, you know, walking with a limp didn't matter as much. I think where the ableism component kind of came into it was when I realized that in some ways I was being typecast as a disabled person. I write about this in the book, but I had the privilege of meeting Margaret Pellegrini, who was one of, at the time, one of the last surviving actors who played a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz um, in the 1939 MGM musical. And, you know, meeting her brought up all of these uncomfortable feelings and tensions with within myself because Margaret was very much a star and she very much owned that she was a sleepyhead munchkin and part of one of the great films of all time. And even in her advanced age, I believe she was probably in her 60s or 70s um, back in the 90s. She was owning it. She would go to, um, you know, speak at different community events. And so my theater teachers actually flew her in and had her had her speak to us and give a presentation about being recruited to be part of, um, I believe they were called Harry Kramer's Hollywood Midgets at the time. Um, that, that was the name of the troupe, you know, inherently a very ableist term. And so um, she and other people in um, that acting company really traded on, 
you know, the fact that they, um, that they were who, that, that they were who they were in their bodies. And so for me, I think I saw both possibility and peril in Margaret's example, because she was very out and very much owned it. And, you know, if I could go back, maybe I wish I could have been more like Margaret and would have taken her example more literally and just owned, um, owned who I was on that stage, my entire person. But as, as it happened, my acting teacher asked me to play the Hunchback of Notre Dame. It was right after the Disney film uh, had come out. And so that was kind of the hot new, the hot new Disney movie in maybe like 1996 or so. And I think just on a subconscious level, I so rejected the idea of playing someone with a disability. In retrospect, it actually would have been a perfect fit and it would have probably been the greatest role of my life. And it could have been a really wonderful opportunity, but it would have taken a degree of ownership and self-possession that I simply did not have as a 12-year-old. You know, I thought, I think if I'd had the language back then, I would have seen it as some sort of a microaggression or felt very put off by, um, you know, by being identified as disabled, when in fact, in some ways, my teacher had just seen me, you know, she'd kind of seen who I was, she saw my talent, she knew I could sing-ish, I'm actually a terrible singer, but she knew that I could kind of sing and kind of act and would probably have thrived in that star role. Um, And so, you know, that's when my acting career, such as it was, really shut down. And I said, you know, I think I said kind of in my head, in in retrospect, subconsciously, if acting will identify me as disabled or put a spotlight on my body in ways that I'm uncomfortable with, I simply will not do it. And so that in itself, I think is such a great example, Carl, of what you were saying about externalized ableism becoming internalized. I think that it was internalized ableism that was the voice in my head saying, oh my God, this is terrifying. You know, if you go out there on that stage, you know, as a disabled person, you will be destroyed. Um, And so I think that Carlotta in so many ways is the most vivid mirror in the book. I would say along with um, my sister Mo, who is also, um, you know, really um, a sharp and occasionally damning mirror for myself. I think that, you know, Carlotta... um, I really wanted Carlotta in the book because I wanted to show how ableist I was and how incapable I was of breaching the silence and of befriending um, this lovely person who in so many ways was more mature about her body than I was. And all I can say about that is I wish that I could have just owned, you know, owned the experience in a more authentic way because, well, she certainly would have had a better date to the dance, for one. <laughs> you know, she she actually might have gotten kissed at the end of that dance if she had asked the right person um, instead of a closeted gay kid who, you know, was also closeted about being disabled. Um, and so I think that, you know, as I got older, um, 
not not reckoning with my disability, just the harms just accrued. And, you know, things would get more and more intense. You know, I think about working as a journalist um, in my early 20s. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a good writer. I'm a great interviewer. I've loved talking and connecting with people. But, you know, dealing with um, like the layout of a page, for example, was really tricky for me. Or even just managing, you know, any kind of a, a career calendar was really hard for me. So I think that I had all of this learned helplessness that was also part of, of you know, internalized and externalized ableism of thinking you're incapable, thinking you can't possibly do this, so you throw up your hands and you don't even try. And so, yeah, um, so I think that that's kind of been, and I think in some ways releasing the book is a little bit of a full circle moment where I just hope that I I kind of get to be that performer again a little bit, you know, in a very different way. And I get to talk to people and I get to show up as my whole self and I get to kind of perform. I mean, yes, it's, you know, with the book in front of my face and I'm, you know, by no means a good actor or, or singer or performer, but performance really can performance does have this way of being really freeing and it kind of makes you say the silent parts out loud. And I think that if you are able to take up the space that that spotlight provides, you kind of, um, like, I don't know, it's so much easier to talk about disability, say on this podcast, than it is, than it can be in a real life situation where those topics it's easy to people for people to feel shy around them or like they're, you know, going to microaggress you or like you're, you know, they're going to make you feel uncomfortable or you make them feel uncomfortable. And so in so many ways, I love the chance to actually talk about things and and connect and have these really heightened, overt conversations um, that, you know, hopefully can be some kind of a script or a starting point for other people to talk about their bodies and, you know, and their human experiences. Thank you, Greg. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were your dad's caregiver when you were in your 20s. What would you wish you could say to your dad now? I think the thing that dis- that I was saddest for him um, was that he didn't get to see how it would all turn out. And I think I would just want him to know that it all turned out okay. You know, it's not that it hasn't been complicated, but um, his love and his acceptance of me um, as a gay man and, you know, really as a disabled person um, has been pivotal in my life. I mean, as he, um, you know, as he lost the ability to move as he had before, as his ALS uh, progressed and he was on a respirator and, you know, largely in um, either a bed or a wheelchair, he, we had such moments of bodily communion where, you know, one moment that I write about in the book is we uh, take a drive up one of the canyons near our house and um, we kind of awkwardly sit on the ground to enjoy ourselves because I'd forgotten to bring chairs for us. And he just said, you know, I'm starting to understand your leg a little bit more. It just never really goes away, does it? And it was such a small moment, but it really allowed us to have 
conversations where we even started to use the word disabled and the term disability to talk about our bodies. You know, I would ask him, um, kind of relating this back to something Carl mentioned earlier, you know, I would ask him if he identified as disabled, you know, what did he have um, ALS in his dreams, for example, uh, you know, kind of, or or did he see himself as a person who had been, um, who had an ailment, you know, later in life? Was that disability um, identity bedrock to his identity or was it something that life had imposed on him? So we started to really talk about all of these, you know, different things. I mean, I remember he had um, a, a mucus plug in his trachea once and, you know, he'd get them all the time and more often than not, we could we could just lodge them with, our, you know, the different apparatuses that uh, that we could use. And he had a cough assist machine that was helpful as well. But this one particular one was really wedged in there and we had to call um, the paramedics. And I felt so much shame about being unable to help him in that situation. But we ended up having this really beautiful conversation where, and which I recorded on a very old um, iPod <laughs> that, uh, you know, it was like 2007 technology, but I had all, you know, have all these recordings. And I just say, I said, you know, when you're disabled or, you know, when you're disabled, you learn that there are maybe some limitations and when you need to step back and let the paramedics in to handle this dire life and death situation. And so it was such a small moment. And I, you know, I said it in a very quavery voiced, hesitant way with my dad. But I think conversations like that let me acknowledge my body with him in ways that were so beautiful. Um, and of course, now I've forgotten <laughs> your amazing question. And I hope that that remotely answered it. But oh, yeah, I would just yeah, I would just want my dad to know that everything kind of turned out okay. So what does the disability rights movement learn from the queer movement? And where can the queer movement learn from the disability rights movement? What can we learn from that community? I guess I can only speak to it in personal terms. You know, I think that, um, I think that, um, I think seeing the progress that, um, the, the queer movement has made, um, certainly since like I was in college, um, has been really instructive. And I think that maybe, oh gosh, I think maybe, you know, RuPaul has this wonderful line um, of it's all just one struggle. And I don't want to oversimplify things. I know that, you know, life is complicated and it's not truly all one struggle, but I think just conceptualizing that intersectionality where you know, I'm not just gay, I'm not just disabled, I'm like a million other things too. And so as much as we can, I think realizing that it is one, you know, one fight um, for autonomy, for a better world, for certain kinds of freedom. Um, and I am going to think deeply about this question and have a wonderful answer for you um, in about like 12 hours after I've psychoanalyzed it. Um, but I'd be so curious, what do, you, what do you guys think about that? What do you think the queer movement and the disabled, uh, the disability rights movement can kind of learn from each other? 
I didn't, I didn't expect you to turn this back on you to turn this back on us. But you are But you are a journalist. After all, I think, I think like you said, like you said bodily, bodily autonomy in being and being proud of who we are. Of who we are. Proud of how we show up in the world. Proud of who we love and who we care for. And we are so out of time. But I cannot help. Squeezing in one more question. Because I think it is spot on. Related to this conversation. And it may not make it in the show. But you are so open. You are so open. In the book. In the book. About bodies. And what bodies do. In all ways. In all in all rooms of the house, of the house in beyond, and beyond. And I was just wondering, and I was just wondering if being disabled, if being disabled helped you. Helped you be more open. Be more open. About those body functions. I think being gay and being disabled for me are sim were similar kind of in intimacy in that they both in both instances you're kind of forced to have really open and overt conversations about what goes where and what you're into and you know kind of what you want to have happen how you see the scenario playing out and i really think that in so many ways in my childhood i think um being disabled protected me in some ways from being discriminated against more for being gay and i think being gay taught me how to be a better disabled person, if that makes sense. But just in terms of the bedroom stuff, I think 
I think that's so perceptive that you asked that. I think that I, you know, I was versed in, I, I think being disabled, honestly, made me a better lover. It made me a better listener. It made me more giving and it made me work around what I couldn't do. And it made me really good at what I could do. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think that I, I think that if I, if it weren't for, you know, CP, I don't know that I would have had to explore and question and sample and talk about it all as much as I have, <laughs> um, much to my mom's chagrin. But, um, so yeah, I think, um, I think being disabled is a lover's secret weapon, you know, because we're used to talking about our bodies. We're used to, you know, showing up for ourselves and for each other. Um, gosh, even being a caregiver probably made me a better lover or more better at caring for people in intimate situations, you know, um, you're just, I don't know, the shame and the, um, the kind of prudishness kind of goes out the window. Like when your dad needs to pee, he needs to pee, you know, and that just needs to happen. <laughs> you know, whatever your feelings are as a, you know, 22 or 23 year old gay man, um, you know, when he needs the commode, hey, he needs the commode. And I think that there's real beauty in seeing bodies for what they are, rather than, you know, we, I mean, and I've done it in this conversation, we're constantly heaping metaphors and concepts onto our bodies. And those are valuable, and those are powerful. But there is also something really strange and uncanny and beautiful about stripping all of that away at times. And I think that, I think that that's hopefully one thing that the book at least suggests. Um, gosh, after a conversation this fascinating, I like, I want to go write like a million more books and I want to read your book. And oh my gosh, this is just so much food for thought. Um, I hope I'm even being semi-coherent, but Man, this is awesome. That was our conversation with Greg Marshall. His new memoir, Leg, The Story of a Limb and the Boy Who Grew From It, came out last month. You can listen to an extended version of our interview with Greg on our website, disabilityrap.org. Transcripts of both versions are available on our website as well. And that does it for the show. Disability to Rap is produced and edited by Carl Sigmund and Courtney Williams. You can go to our website, disabilityrap.org, to listen to past shows, read transcripts, and subscribe to the Disability to Rap podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast by searching Disability to Rap on any of the major podcast platforms. We are brought to you by KVMR in partnership with Free. And we're distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Lindsay Wells with Carl Sigmund for another edition of Disability Rap.